This episode of African Tech Conversations is brought to you by GoDaddy. Buy your own domain name, build your site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save 30% at trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. That's trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. Chad Larson is one of the three founders of the Kenyan solar power startup Mcopa. He serves as the company's finance director and chief credit officer and has lived in Nairobi with his wife and three boys since the company launched in 2011. Chad is a qualified CFA and an Oxford MBA who previously served as the CFO of the AfriCap Microfinance Investment Fund based in Johannesburg. And prior to that, he spent 10 years in the investment banking division of Bank of America in Sydney and New York, working on fixed income, structured finance, and derivative transactions. This is African Tech Conversations. So Chad, I'd like you to think back to when you were in primary or, as you said, in the U.S. elementary school, um, or even younger perhaps, to um, one of the darkest times of that time in your life. And using light as a metaphor, um, tell me how you came out of it. I didn't expect that to be the lead-off question. Take some time to think about it if you need to, but um, primary school or younger? Yeah, well, certainly there was a lot of times in around then that if I would have realized where my career would have gone, it would have very much surprised me because I remember just the, the difficulty in keeping up with others from time to time in elementary school, for sure. And I wasn't a great student really at all by any by any measure. And uh, I'm sometimes I when I take a look back, I'm able to be surprised about how I've ended up doing okay and that ended up kind of you know having de- a decent kind of life and career trajectory because uh certainly in elementary school you you wouldn't have predicted it and so what did you struggle with then I struggled with uh keeping organized and I think I, it's something I still struggle with I, I I definitely have attention deficit disorder but I think maybe maybe the the global economy can kind of accommodate that sort of thing now in a way that I like to just pay attention to all different things. And I think as we start to talk about the business of MCOPA, I think one of the things that has made it so interesting and allowed me to thrive is it allows me to kind of poke my nose into lots of different interesting parts of the business and see how they fit together. But, you know, I can't, it's still difficult for me to stay focused on any one thing for months at a time, which you would need to do if you're a career professional engineer or a career professional accountant, where, you know, you need to keep that sustained focus over months or years. Uh, and I still struggle with that. And I think that wasn't really, uh, didn't really help me in, in my school career, but has really helped me in, in kind of my uh, post-school career, even in investment banking. I think it helped a lot because I just took an interest in lots of different parts of the financial markets, probably more than most, just sort of a dilettante and kind of looking here and there and not really focused and getting kind of 85% mastery of any one area and then moving on to, to different things. So... And so what do you think your experience in elementary school and the way you struggled given, you know, the way your mind works? What, what, do you, what does it say to you about maybe the, the schooling system or structured education in general? What, does, what sort of things come to mind in terms of that for you? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the schooling system is not necessarily meant to produce entrepreneurs. And I, I, I don't know if it would be appropriate for the schooling system to have it as a goal of producing just a bunch of people who are kind of have limited focus and, and kind of move from here to there. I think, you know, the truth is, you know, the most people probably aren't going to end up being entrepreneurs. Like there's going to be big institutions in our economy that will need workers that will need to show up every day that will need to stay focused. 
that uh, that are not going to be entrepreneurs. So maybe the schooling system is good for that. But you know, it's it's good uh, when it also when you can get especially those teachers that really kind of ignite that spark of curiosity in certain students that then allow them to kind of explore the world uh, a bit differently and become entrepreneurs. Do you have people in your life from that time of you you know from that time in your life that stand out for you in terms of that? Yeah, I mean, there's there, there's definitely uh, certain certain teachers I can remember from 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 around that time, and sometimes it wasn't even necessarily someone who uh, you know it would be like an English teacher, but who just really kind of uh, sparked that kind of curiosity of of kind of exploring the world on your own rather than relying on the schools to educate you. It's kind of like that was sort of the baseline for you to go and out into the world and educate yourself. And so, coming back to the question I asked initially. It was this one big dark cloud when you think of that time in your life or was this like pockets of like difficulty as a child trying to cope or um, like how, why would you I'm just trying to get to how you we, we, we got here when I asked the question. Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly there was a sense that I had even kind of into 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 high school that just if the if the things I need to succeed in life are the same as those in school, then I'm going to really struggle, you know? And I think it was only, I think when I got to university is when I started to realize that wasn't necessarily the case. The things that caused certain students to do well in school weren't necessarily the ones that equipped them for, for kind of uh, the, the big broader world. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely I, I remember that as a child having that sense of, I wonder if I'm ever going to kind of figure this stuff out in the way that other people have. And I suppose in today's world with, you know, all these big entrepreneurial, you know, these glitzy shows, Shark Tank, Dragon's Den and all these things, it's probably cool for kids to think that way, to think, oh, I'm different and maybe that could be my thing. Um, do you ever remember feeling like that could be your thing or did that, did that always leave you feeling like you were going to, you know, life was going to suck for you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely not back, back in those days. I mean, there wasn't sort of that, this idea that you could just, you could kind of chase what you were interested in and that might, you know, by kind of chasing it different ways and going where your interests lead that might, you know, you might stumble upon a way that you can make a living. That certainly wasn't a concept that taught, was taught when I was a kid. I think maybe it, more and more it, it is now, which which I think is useful. So where were, where were you growing up? Where wasn't this a thing? And what options were available to you where you grew up? Yeah, so this is in Minnesota, um, um, where I grew up in, in, in the 70s, uh, 70s and 80s. Um, and yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a feature of that area. It's probably, probably now maybe the culture has changed where kind of entrepreneurship is valued and chasing kind of, I don't know if it's like chasing your passions, but it's kind of like chasing your interests um, and how, you know, basically how one interest can lead to another interest and those combinations of different interests can sometimes create a career uh, unexpectedly. I think maybe that's something that's fostered there now. I wouldn't necessarily know. Look, I mean, for my mother's generation, certainly growing up in Zimbabwe, um, she had two options. If she passed well enough, she could be a nurse. If she passed just enough, she could be a teacher. If she didn't pass at all, she'd go back and live with her parents. Yeah. Uh, what sort of options were available to you in, in that? You know, the reason I'm curious about this is because stereotypically we assume, and you've got an American accent, you're obviously from Minnesota, you're American. Uh, I think there's a stereotype about Americans being through and through entrepreneurial and it being ingrained in, 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 in society and all that. So it's quite interesting to hear that, it, you know, someone could grow up in the U.S. and that not be the case. 
Right. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I, I mean, I think part of it maybe was the time, but also the area. But, you know, in the area, I was in the suburbs of Minneapolis. And, you know, what, what with the benefit of hindsight, was extremely kind of socially and economically homogenous area. It's like in my school, it's like everyone was in kind of the middle class to maybe slight upper middle class, like the, probably the, the wealthiest kid in the school, his dad was a dentist and kind of the poorest kid in the school, his dad was a mechanic or something like that. But everyone was fine. No one, there was no internet entrepreneur in the mix and whatever, but it, it did seem like the full range of possible career paths were there in that school for you. And they were all kind of general middle class uh, career paths. I don't know if it was the same as kind of more regimented societies uh, where it's kind of like, you know, if, if you can do really well, you can become a doctor, then maybe a lawyer, then maybe an accountant or engineer, and then maybe it kind of moves down the, the list. It, it didn't quite feel like that. But certainly, uh, you know, there was no one I knew who, who whose, whose parents had started a business or were entrepreneurs or, or anything like that. I've got a picture of all of you in, in plaid shirts, plaid flan, flannel shirts. <laughs> Yeah, 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 absolutely. If you look at the old school pictures from first grade, second grade, it's like, yeah, it wasn't a very uh, diverse <laughs> group of kids, as you can imagine. Right, right. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to fast forward. Uh, let's fast forward to the present day and tell me the last time you, you experienced a, a, yeah, well, a comparable form of darkness, that little cloud, we, I tried, you know, that you described in your present sort of career. I don't know if it, it might, you know, it might be imposter syndrome or it might be, you know, struggling to, to make something work. Um, but some, some sort of darkness and again, using lights as, as an analogy, how you, you would have come out of it. Yeah. I mean, definitely. So in the five years since we started, uh, M Copa, five or six years since we started M Copa, there's definitely been some real, real dark times when we've sort of questioned, uh, me and my two co-founders like, geez, are we really onto something like we thought? Or was that just that blind optimism? And usually we were hit with kind of an external, uh, events, some sort of, uh, you know, we, we had a, some bad tax rulings and things like that, where it's just like, geez, maybe this was not, maybe we just didn't do our uh, homework right up front to figure out if this is going to work or not. But I think that that was one of the benefits was having a couple of co-founders that I founded MCOPA with to basically help each other through it. Because usually when one of us is one of us is down or discouraged, some of the others are optimistic. So I, I think it would have been much harder to do what we're doing now if it was a single single founder. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm certain certain I couldn't have done it uh, solo because I've needed my partners to kind of get get me through those times. And so you're a finance head. Uh, which stereotypes associated with financial people are true about you specifically? And I mean, you've given me a hint as to what's not uh, quite you know, uh, stereotypically uh, financial about you, given what we've talked about so far. But what aspects of being, you know, coming up in banking, I think you started on the trading floor and coming up in that system and then leaving it just a few years before the, the, the absolute meltdown that, you know, that hit the world. Um, what stereotype about people in that position? Bank of America, I think it was, right? So what stereotype is true about you, like from a personality point of view or, you know, you know what the stereotypes out there, right? I mean, I'd say so. One of the one of the things I think I picked up as a trader, or maybe kind of um, exacerbated this part of my kind of inclinations, is as a trader, you need to make decisions fast with limited information, and you it causes you to become very impatient. You sort of you try to gather as much information as fast as you can, and then you need to act because if you wait until you have perfect information or even have ninety five percent confidence, you'll just never you'll just never be able to take any action because things will move uh, beyond you. You won't be able to kind of make the trade. Whatever opportunity you spotted will be gone by the time you gather that information. So you become very good at kind of having a hunch getting some data to try to validate or invalidate that hunch and then moving, moving quickly. And I'd say that's, uh, 
that's probably still a feature uh, that's built into my personality of, you know, uh, impatient, uh, not interested in 99% probabilities, interested in getting kind of 85% confident of something and then going for it, right? And sometimes this drives people I work with crazy because they, they want to take much more deliberative steps. Like, you know, it's just not enough to be kind of have a general feeling and some, a handful of data points, you know, they, they want more precision. And I'd say, you know, from, from the experience as a, as a trader, it's kind of caused me, like, I'd rather make, you know, five, decisions at 85% confidence and one decision at 99% confidence, because ultimately it's like the more, th the more things that you can kind of hone in on, focus on <clears throat> and kind of drive forward at 85% confidence, I think the better. Um, so I'd say in a way that kind of background as a trader, I think has led to kind of me helping drive the business forward. Um, always, you know, never with perfect confidence, which you'll never get, but with a decent level, but then moving fast. Were you a canary in a coal mine when it comes to when you decided to leave the world of finance, uh, at least in, in the U.S. in terms of the Bank of America? Because it was two years just before, I think it's 2006 you left and everything like went downhill from here. What did you see? No, I wouldn't say I had some premonition about a crash, though I, I would say that a lot of the trades, uh, you know, I worked there 10 years and a lot of the trades that we had going it's like all the juice had been squeezed. Like there, there had been so much leverage put in the financial system that all of these kind of trades that you got by just adding a different incremental bits of leverage seemed to be played out and they were just getting more and more exotic. So I didn't, I didn't see the meltdown coming, but it did seem like when I left in 2006 that the best days were behind me. But I also wanted to make a change. I'd done it for 10 years. I didn't necessarily want to make a career out of it. When I looked at people that had been doing it for 25 or 30 years, it wasn't, I didn't envy kind of where they were. And I thought, you know, I, I definitely want to have a career where I do lots of different things. I wouldn't have known where it would have ended up living in Kenya, running a solar power business. That's definitely unexpected. But I think that was the sort of randomness that I wanted to inject into my life when I left investment banking. Uh, with the hope of kind of figuring out what was next and it leading to something better, which it which it has. So then you leave America to come to Johannesburg. What brought you here? Yeah. So first, before that, shortly after I left Bank of America, I went and did an MBA at Oxford, which was really a, a kind of a critical turning point because that's importantly where I met my two other co-founders, one who was a fellow MBA student and the other who worked at Vodafone nearby, who was working on the M-Pesa system uh, at the time, the Kenyan M-Pesa system. Um, so I met the two of them. And over the years, we sort of cooked up this idea. And in 2010, we left our jobs to, to get it going. But in between that, I went and became the CFO of a microfinance fund here in Johannesburg um, that invested in various microfinance banks across the continent, which was another good bit of experience that helped me with my current job and that I got a real exposure to, I guess, the challenges of operating a kind of financial business in Africa, you know, keeping fraud levels down, keeping operating costs down in places where often if efficiencies are hard to, hard to come by. And so finding a startup co-founder is often likened to dating or marriage. In which ways is that analogy true for your relationship or at least how you got together with the other co-founders of, you know, in, in Copa? Yeah. I mean, I'd say, you know, the, the relationship be between me and Jesse Moore and Nick Hughes, the two other co-founders. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd compare it to a marriage, but it's certainly like there's always sort of a healthy camaraderie and tension between the three of us. We come in with three different approaches to problems and often that's, you know, it creates some conflict in the short term, but it often leads to great decisions in the long term. Like we sort of, 
look at it a few different ways. And uh, the, the result historically has been been pretty good. But, you know, it, there is sort of a, a constant sort of tension, not unhealthy tension, but kind of a conflict in like the vision of where, where we should be going next. What should we be doing in this in this particular product set or over the next six months? And uh, we'll often come in with different ideas. So I'd say, you know, it's sort of a respectful sort of um, conflict between the three of us. Let me in on some of the, to take that analogy a step further, the courtship period. Like, how do you go from studying at Varsity together, studying this MBA together, to identifying, um, you know, skills in each other that you could leverage into a business, to deciding you actually want to spend that much time with someone building something, to to actually getting it going? Like, talk me through the science of that for you guys. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess I was sort of the, maybe I was the most... Uh, I was the one, the, the free rider, because the two of them had already left their jobs and decided to do this before I did the same thing by leaving what I was doing in Johannesburg. So they sort of had already jumped and it started basically the, the company that eventually became Mcopa. Um, and I kind of jumped in, uh, basically on the strength of, of basically what, what I thought they, that they could do. And some of the, some of the early ideas that they had specifically the idea that became, became Mcopa, this idea that you could embed, a SIM card and a modem inside a solar system and that could control a payment plan and you could finance this for customers who couldn't otherwise afford it but really, really need this product. Okay, so we're going to talk about, again, you, you've given, you've uh, alluded to the, the products and, and how it works and I'm really interested in that. We'll talk about that in a minute. I want us to go from sort of the macro uh, situation around energy and the problems that are there and and uh, doing the African Tech Roundup on a weekly basis and covering, you know, tech on the on the continent, you know, I've I've encountered a lot of criticism uh, around uh, the whole investment trend towards solar players. Uh, not any one particular, just as a, as an idea. Um, I mean, there's Mcopa that often comes up. Um, D Light. You guys are pretty much the darlings of of this of this business. If you consider coverage abroad on on the on the matter, etc. So you tend to you know come up more often, but not because you're doing anything wrong necessarily. But um, often there's a comparison made between um, the amount of the the, the amount of uh, PR and investment going into into this direction, uh, and the amount of energy going into the privatization of, of education, for example, through uh, you know billionaire backed institutions like Bridge International Academies, is is the amount of grant funding going to companies in this space setting the industry and the continent up for a fall, or is this all a good thing? I mean, it's something we worry about in the solar business, and and, and partly it's a, it's you know we're we're a victim of our own success in a way because Mcopa, I guess, and others like Delight, as you mentioned, have demonstrated like there is a huge market among people who are off the grid for solar as basically a solution to their basic energy needs, and you know Delight has approached it uh, mostly with their small units, which are fantastic products, which they've sold millions of, uh, which a lot of people rely on in Africa, and Mcopa has gone a bit bigger, said let's go for something that feels a bit more like electricity, but is too expensive for customers to buy in one shot. So it needs finance. And we've got the technology solution that finances it. So, you know, we've, we've both had some success as has have others, but that's drawn a lot of money into this space because people see the proof points. And then I do worry that now, um, you know, because a lot of this stuff is about execution. I wouldn't say MCOPA has had the best idea, but I think we've executed it really well. I think we realized some things early on that where execution, especially on the sales side was critical 
to getting this thing started. It wasn't about the technology as much as it was the distribution. And I think that's why we've been able to move over 400,000 systems and move 400,000 East Africans off of kerosene and onto solar. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely a worry, but I mean, it's a good problem to have. It's like, the success of MCOPA and others have brought more money into the space, but that's definitely supporting some weaker players now that we see out there that are not executing very well, but they're supported by this, this money that, this hot money that's kind of come in into the space. But overall, you know, compared to, compared to the kind of investment trends you see in the developed world, it's still nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. I mean, you know, these, you'll hear about a new $50 million fund or whatever to support, uh, working capital for solar. I mean, compared to the kind of the, the hot money that sloshes in when Silicon Valley finds something hot, it's, it's really, it's really nothing. And I think there's still a huge market here that, you know, the big challenge for all of us is to move people off of kerosene and onto solar. And in terms of the model, you guys are quite similar, and correct me if I'm wrong, to the way SolarCity goes about doing their business in the U.S.? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's an apt analogy. It's, it, it's, you know, SolarCity, it's the same thing. It's the, the huge problem with solar, uh, is that the costs are entirely upfront for the most part. You know, the maintenance is quite low. The power generation is free. It's all CapEx and not OpEx. Um, so to move a Californian household who might save a lot of money by putting solar panels on their roof, but they've got to spend $20,000 to get that set of panels on their roof, but then they'll save on their electricity bills for the next 20 years, and it'll the return on investment will be spectacular. And Solar Cities realized that and realized you need to finance it and has really tried to crack that in the in the first world. I'd say we're the very much scaled-down version of that. We're doing the same thing, but just in in the emerging markets in, in East Africa where people are you know, spending, uh, they'll save money versus their kerosene spending by moving off of kerosene and onto this, but they need finance to make that happen. So we're just on a $200 system instead of a $20,000 system. But really the, the, the economics are very similar. For someone not familiar with MCOPA and, 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 how, and, and the change it can make to a household, what is, what is, the, what is the point A to B in terms of you had you didn't have it yesterday and now you have it today what sort of changes does the household experience yeah so i mean so our target household was already spending 50 cents a day on kerosene which is about a half liter of kerosene in rural uh, kenya uh, and that's about a night's worth of kerosene if they have one or two lamps in their home so the idea is they redirect that money to us and instead of uh, spending it on kerosene they're paying off a loan on a solar system over the course of a year so that 50 cents a day gets them the same utility if not better because they get basically their lighting they get two lights on long cables with wall switches for a, so for a small home uh, it can feel like electricity you walk in the door you hit the switch the lights go on overhead it's much brighter than their kerosene lamp and it it feels much more like you're in a modern home than lighting up the kerosene lamp on the table uh, it has a phone charging module so our customers would have been paying to have their phones charged most likely and maybe they travel to town once or twice a week or send it with a neighbor who's traveling to town they'd leave the phone with the shopkeeper charge it up and bring it back um, obviously huge inconvenience and they pay for that service. And then they're also buying batteries for small appliances like radios, like flashlights. And so our system includes a rechargeable flashlight and a rechargeable radio, so they don't, they don't have to buy those batteries anymore. So the change is, I mean, the immediate change is they should be spending the same amount of money but getting a much, much better service and that they, you know, they're not leaving their phone 
for eight hours while their neighbor travels to town, charges it up for a couple hours, and then brings it back after doing their errands. They're not lighting up fuel inside their home with the fumes and the smoke and the fire risk and all of that. But, you know, most of the customers, the big selling point for our customers is the cost savings. For them, it's a simple equation. If they're spending more than 50 cents a day on kerosene, they realize that basically this is going to save them money. And after a year, they're going to own this system, and then they basically won't have that expenditure at all. That's really the, the, the calculation for our customers. I think once they get it in their home, then they really experience the benefits of that convenience that, you know, they might have had to walk a kilometer or two to get the kerosene and they'd bring a glass Coke bottle, fill that up, bring it back home. And maybe they do that every day or every couple days. So they don't need to do that anymore. And then they charge their phone overnight, just like you and I do. It's a, it's a big difference once you experience it. I think for our customers, it's hard for them to imagine basically what that convenience feels like until they actually have it in their home. So I think that becomes another big selling point. But the thing that sells it in the first place is the cost savings. I think for most of our customers, you can't sell it to them on any other feature. The safety stuff, it's interesting to them, but that's not going to sell it. The thing that's going to sell it is you're going to have more money in your pocket at the end of the day if you use our system than if you do what you're doing now. And so where's the stuff made? Do you guys help? the? Do you facilitate the installation? And then where do people access the service? How, how do they order it from you? Right. So uh, the manufacturing is done a combination of China, Kenya, and Mauritius. Um, so, you know, hopefully in the longer term, more of that stuff will move into East Africa. For right now, it's just the panels on our larger systems that are made in Kenya. But we, we hope more of that will be done over time. Um, and the way it's distributed is through a commissioned sales force. You know, we, we realized early on that to basically sell this, it required a basically an individual conversation with each customer. You couldn't just sell it by putting up billboards, by running radio ads. Like each customer had to be convinced based on their expenditure that they were going to save money versus what they were doing now. And that was something that you couldn't really do in kind of mass market campaigns. It required a sales force that earned a good commission per sale because it's a hard sale to make that would have a 15 minute conversation with a prospective customer and convince them Listen, this is going to save you money. If you move on to this today, by next week, you're going to have more money in your pocket. But the- and how much money did you lose before you figured that out? Uh, yeah, we had a few missteps, you know, and I, and I wouldn't say that, you know, that our, our, our sales, uh, operation is like a hundred percent baked right now. I'd say the clay is still not fully dry in a lot of the areas of the business. We're still five years in kind of pivoting and navigating. I think that'll probably continue for a long time. Um, so, you know, I, it's hard for me to put a dollar figure on it, but certainly we had a lot of missteps. And even today, I'm certain we're making certain mistakes about the way we do things that later with the benefit of hindsight, we'll say that this will look obvious. But, um, but we did, I think one of the reasons we've been able to move so many systems is early on, we realized it really needed that individual conversation. So you needed a sales force that made a good commission when they made a sale. And then, so that actually even led to the pricing decision. You had to price it high enough that you had enough juice in your margins to pay that sales force well. So I'd say that was one of our um, early, very strong decisions moving to a direct sales model. Right. And so, you know, as a company, what's your vision for Africa over the next 10 or 20 years? Cause linked to the question I'm asking is, Buying into the dream or the vision you guys have, does that mean uh, giving up on Africa, getting its act together in terms of investing in in infrastructure? So, I mean, this is the interesting thing. It's like when you look at sub-Saharan Africa and the low number of electricity connections and you say, well, why? Why Why is that number so low? Why is such a small percentage of the population connected? I mean, sometimes people say, well, these countries don't have their act together, but really it's pretty, it's, it's much simpler than that. And, and you can even let the countries off the hook for not having a large number. It's, it's not profitable to connect these customers. Like the reason it's profitable 
if there's a new subdivision going up in California or Minnesota or wherever, the reason it's profitable for the electricity company to connect there is because those people are going to spend a lot big electricity bills. So whatever the cost is of putting the wires out to that new set of homes is going to be made up by the the power utility. So they're very eager to connect that new subdivision. In Africa, this is not the case. You have some rural area, a dense rural area of farmers. The electricity grid has no interest in connecting that because they can't make money connecting it. The cost of running those wires out there, running them to each home, putting meters um, on the side of each home is more than you're ever going to reasonably make up in any any kind of reasonable time frame from the electricity usage because the usage is going to be so minimal. Um, um, so that's the, that's the main reason why there's so, so few connections is the type of customers who are not connected just would not be profitable to connect. So this is where I think MCOPA and others who provide solar are really doing kind of a service is like, you know, it's sort of like the fixed line telephones, this, how the cell phone providers really did a service, you know, back in 2000, the, the, the fixed line telephone monopolies in Africa would have all had plans to connect their entire countries. I'm sure there was a map on the wall of the of the monopoly telephone provider, how they were going to connect all of Kenya with telephones by 2020 or something. I'm sure they had some 20-year plan that they were going to do that. And at some point, they realized there's no reason for them to do that because the cell phone uh, the network operators can do it much more efficiently with a much lighter solution. It doesn't require running copper cables out to every last little village. You know, you just put up towers now and then. It's a much lighter solution. And I'd say solar is kind of the same thing. I think in a few years, this is going to come a lot more into focus for the utilities. They're like, why would we bother running the lines out to this area where where these people don't use much power you know they can just put panels on the roof and that'll power everything that they that they possibly need right now you know as as certain countries in africa become richer you know you could if you see the growth rates that you see in kenya continuing pretty soon you're going to have a pretty much a middle income country and then people will want washing machines and electric kettles and things that need more of the grid type electricity but i'm not sure because if that's 5 or 10 years from now you know solar technology is advancing pretty fast and especially the things around solar technology lithium ion batteries um DC appliances, things like that, where, you know, it's quite possible by 10 years from now, actually, it's quite reasonable to run washing machines and electric kettles just off of panels on your roof stored in lithium ion batteries, because the technology keeps getting better and better every year, where the grid technology is not really changing much, you know, it's pretty much the same today, especially on the distribution side, the way that power gets from the generation plant to the customers pretty much looks the same today as it did 50 years ago with, you know, a few, there's not, there's not some like, 10% 10% efficiency that's coming in every year. But on solar, there is. I mean, the product that we're selling right now, we're pretty much selling for, we're on our fourth generation version of the product that we're selling to our customers at the moment. And it's just like, you know, the difference between iPhone 1 and iPhone 4. It's way better today than it was in the, in the, in the first version, but it's the same price. It's because everything in our product keeps getting better and better. So we keep packing more into it at the same price. So I could see a situation where, you know, Africa, just just like they did with cell phones and just like they're doing with mobile money, that they really leapfrog the legacy technology and a huge amount of the population, not all of it, but especially the rural population, just goes right on a solar. They just generate their own power on their rooftop, they store it in lithium-ion batteries on their wall, and they discharge it into very efficient appliances. And there's no reason to run this legacy infrastructure uh, that was used in the past out to the homes, just, just as the same as the fixed-line telephones. So let me paint a picture. Uh, governments are waking up to a boat they missed around mobile telephony. Uh, and and um, I think a lot of them are feeling a great deal of revenue that they would have loved to be in on. They missed out on because they, they sold licenses for nothing. And they, they you know basically uh, now don't have 
access to some of the most valuable database stashes on the continent. And now they want in and in different ways, you'll see like the Egyptian government trying to ensure that that doesn't happen with 4G LTE and that doesn't happen with, and I think, I feel like the boat has kind of sailed as far as, as mobile telephony. Like you say, other technologies are taking over and and they're, they're sweating assets they're struggling with. Um, I do see some of the political issues around the privatization of energy, even at a mac, it's a sort of micro home-to-home level um, emerging over time. Uh, and I'm wondering if these, these sort of things come up in your thinking strategically around uh, ensuring that, uh, you know, countries, uh, governments aren't disent- or don't feel disenfranchised by what they could wake up one day and feel like, hey, that should be us uh, profiting, f- uh, at least the fiscus should be benefiting directly from some of these initiatives, or perhaps this should be um, energy and time spent on direct infrastructural development, perhaps in solar, I don't know. Right. I mean, to me, this doesn't seem like it should be a problem for governments, because in a way, if you, if you think about the typical African utility that's state-owned, we're picking off the least profitable customers. We're not. It's not like we're coming in and eating their lunch and taking the most profitable customers. We're not taking the you know, the aluminum smelter off their hands or anything like that. Like those guys are still going to use the grid. Uh, the dense urban areas are still going to use the grid. The customers like me and you who have big electricity bills each month, we're going to want the grid. We're picking off the customers that right now they can't profitably connect. So it should be solving a political problem rather than creating one where mobile phones maybe didn't have that advantage because they sort of picked off all customers. They picked off some of the best customers and 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 also at the very bottom of the pyramid customers because you know both rich and poor people quickly adopted mobile phones. So, you know, it really ate the lunch of the fixed line telecoms. Here I don't see that's the case. You know, at least for now, the dense urban areas, the grid is still the most appropriate way to supply them. Any place where there's there's industry, there's welders, there's kind of stuff like that going on. But that doesn't describe a huge amount of Africa when you get out in the rural areas. You know, you just have villages that have some basic needs. The grid does not need to go to those places. And we're, we should be solving a problem by being able to give them something that gives them a grid-like experience, not quite, but n- nearly what the grid can give them but with a much lighter solution that doesn't require them you know, running running heavy infrastructure out to these homes. And how profitable is this business? I mean, so we have 400,000 customers or about 425,000 customers. On an average customer basis, we're making money. We, we're priced to be profitable on a customer-by-customer basis. And I mean, we don't make money on every customer because we price like a portfolio. We'll lose money on certain customers. They'll default on the loan. They won't be able to finish or they'll pay so slowly that we, we won't make our money back. But then we make money on enough customers that it covers those. And there's profits. I mean, right now we still have fixed costs because we're a growing business that are not justified by our size. You know, we probably need another 200,000 customers today to be covering the fixed costs. But luckily we have venture capital investment that recognizes that and is is really designed exactly for this purpose. You know, there, our investors are going to put money into this to the until the point where the, the growth will be big enough to where we can basically cover that. So the key here is, you know, on a customer by customer basis, we make money. It's just then we have a big technology platform, R&D, um, pr- uh, engineering, et cetera, that's it's sort of too big relative to the customer base right now. But this is a common problem. And this is where, you know, the, this is the best source of venture capital is basically to fund those losses until the point where you can get to the scale that you need to to, to make the business work. 
Are you giving up uh, equity f- in exchange for this uh, uh, investment, or is this debt funding? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, I mean, part of part of the deal when you bring on external investors is you you, you give up some of the some of the upside uh, as the founders, and that's part of the deal. But we're very grateful to have kind of committed backers from the beginning, uh, who are you know really aligned with us on the journey and want to see this go to where it could be. So, but yeah, part of that is you give up some of the upside. But we're quite happy to do that because we're far bigger today because of that investment than we could be. But we do also have a debt debt needs that we use uh, debt funding for, and that's mostly on the working capital side. The fact that we pay our suppliers much earlier than we get the money back from our customers. So we always have that gap to fill that we use debt funding for. And so how much of the, the money you've received uh, is is the grant funding? Um, uh, so if you look at the percent of, I guess, all of our external money raised, it might be about 20% that would be grant funding, just off the top of my head. Um, the big, uh, and this is public information, but the the biggest grant facilities we, we have are from the Shell Foundation uh, and the Gates Foundation have both given us uh, lar- large grant facilities to basically expand expand the business. But that makes up the smaller part of our capitalization. Most of the money is coming from kind of commercial sources where they're expecting a, a real return, either in the form of principal and interest if they're a debt funder or some significant upside if they're an equity funder. But we, we are lucky in that we're in a space. I mean, you know, most businesses don't have the luxury of having grant funding as part of their their funding mix, uh, but we're lucky in that because we're in a space that certain certain um, organizations find um, socially beneficial that we're able to use grant funding as well as part of our funding mix. A lot of East African-based startups uh, get a bad rap um, from from critics who, who say too much grant funding going to that area. We're not promoting sustainability. I'm deducing from what you're saying that your business would be perfectly financially stable and sustainable going forward without this grant funding. I mean, I'd say the grant has allowed us to accelerate things and we're bigger than than we would have been if we hadn't had the grant funding. Um, but uh, but we'd, I think we'd still be fine with without without the grant funding. I mean, I think the best use of grant funding, uh, or maybe you could say the only appropriate use, is sort of covering those I mean, it's like the venture capital, uh, if it's not available, it's kind of covering those fixed investments that you need to get up to the minimum scale or sort of capacity building to get up to that scale. I guess grant funding becomes a problem if it sort of subsidizes the core product or allows you to be inefficient and kind of picks up uh, the slack on that inefficiency. I mean, that's where then you're not building sustainable businesses. I mean, just imagine if the grant funding, this is not what the grant funding has been used for at MCOPA, but imagine it had been used to kind of subsidize our customers' um, payment plans where the grants came in and they said, we'll reduce the price by 25% to the customer. I mean, that'd be interesting, but as soon as the grant funding wore out, we'd have to price commercially again, we'd have a problem, right? But that's not how the grant funding has been used. The grant funding has been used to cover kind of the upskilling and the upsizing of the sales force, the tech platform, things like that. Basically things that are not related to the kind of the customer uh, acquisition and experience. So I think that's appropriate. It's, you know, it could come from venture investors, it could come from the grant providers, but it's not subsidizing, you know, basically the pricing and the service to the customer is standing on its own. That doesn't rely on any grant funding at all. To be fair to the critics, uh, in many cases, the situation you just described is pretty much exactly how grant funding ends up operating within businesses. And unfortunately, it's, it's to me, is tantamount to crack really where, um, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll sponsor, we'll, we'll subsidize uh, $2 off every sort of home you connect. I am aware of some uh, schemes and certainly so, quote unquote social businesses that work on that model. And, um, I, listening to you, you'd, you'd agree with me in saying that's not a plan. Yeah, I mean, right now, you know, in a way, it's like if we never get another dollar of grant funding, you know, the the, the customer 
proposition will be the same regardless. I mean, I'd love it if we're able to get more grant funding uh, to build more capacity at HQ, whether it's in our, our tech platform or our product or or the people or whatever it might be. But the customer proposition won't change uh, whether we get more grant funding or do not get more grant funding. But yeah, that's true. I mean, I think the critics are right. There's That's not always the case. Sometimes the grant funding does go to basically subsidizing the inputs or, or the actual customer price, which I don't think is useful. I mean, just as an example, if you look at when I was in um, – uh, Africap in the microfinance industry, you know, some of the microfinance banks get sort of concessional um, wholesale funding, basically, you know, funding on the um, the liability side of their balance sheet at kind of a discounted rate, which then allows them to not be as good on the banking side. Like they don't necessarily have to price their loans as keenly, or they can have worse default rates and still be in business, which I don't think is a great way to way to kind of support a microfinance bank because, you know, you want them to get good at to where they can kind of stand on their own by, and by giving them that cushion, you know, they're not going to be able to do that. Where with us, I think we've, I think for the most part, we've used it appropriately where it's been a substitute for other, other types of investment in the fixed infrastructure of the company. Basically, we need to avoid the Wall Street treatment at all costs. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Pretty much. And so, you know, how many rounds of funding have you guys gone through? Uh, we've been through five rounds of funding, equity funding. And so what sort of money do you stay away from or leave on the table when offers are made? I mean, I think now we're moving to where, um, I mean, we're, we're in a, this is a good problem to have in that we have lots of kind of potential equity funders that are calling us to see basically if they can talk to us about equity investment. So we're in the position now, which we weren't early on, that basically we're picking and choosing who our backers are based on, you could say, more than money. Like what what else do they bring to the table other than their checkbook? Um, and so part of it might be their ability to follow on. So, you know, they might be willing to put in X amount today, but they could go up to five times that over the next couple of years if you need it so they can grow with you so you don't have to keep chasing other other investors. But then also their network and kind of upskilling your senior team, their connections to kind of uh, maybe, you know, as, maybe as you outgrow certain investors that are at certain sizes that they can kind of pass you on to the, the next tier up of investors. And not all your investors can do that. So, so um, I'd say, you know, we're turning away a lot of uh, prospective equity investors these days and kind of picking and choosing the ones we want. And But we've got a great set of backers now. I'd say we're completely aligned with our backers. And we've got a team that I think will allow us growth in the next two to five years as far as they'll have connections if we outgrow the checkbooks of certain investors, they'll be connected at the level above them to where they'll kind of pass us on to the people who can help us, provided we continue to grow. We're taking a short break to let you know that GoDaddy makes registering domain names fast, simple, and affordable. GoDaddy is the world's largest domain registrar and is trusted by over 13 million customers around the globe. Now, they provide everything you need to get your business set up online, including award-winning 24-7 support. Now, to save 30% on a new domain name or to use any of their other services, go to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. That's trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech to save 30%. And now, back to the conversation. Let me ask you a more direct question. I mean, Uber surprised a lot of people by taking money from the Saudi Arabian government, for example. What wouldn't you do in terms of that yeah, I mean, I, I, it might be. Yeah, I, 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 I can't say I know a ton about the transaction, but um, other than just what I read in the news, but it, it's hard to see um, uh, the benefit. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to see what the benefits of that would be versus kind of more mainstream uh, private equity. Though, I mean, it depends. You know, some sometimes um, 
working with um, non-traditional investors like that, an advantage is they have sort of an unlimited uh, time horizon on their investment. So as opposed to a fund, like a venture capital fund that wants to see a result within five years, seven years. So if you have a business that, you know, maybe Uber's vision is that they're going to become like the global logistics provider, but it's going to, you know, in basically every last, every last thing is going to move by Uber that used to move by truck. Um, so and maybe they think they need 20 years to get to that vision. So maybe a sovereign wealth fund might be the best investor because they don't have, they don't have to show a result within five or seven years. I, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I don't know the strategy, but yeah, I mean, I, I'd say, you know, having, having investors that have a long-term time horizon is also useful. So I could see the virtues in that. And so what do you make of uh, super famous uh, hip hop star Akon with his um, lighting up Africa initiative? He, I mean, I, I watched a video the other day where he came out saying that um, his project had been given a billion dollar credit line. And uh, I, I think by the Chinese, I believe, uh, what do you what do you make of? I'm not asking you to speak to to comment on his business necessarily, but um, I want you to help me sift uh, sift the hype from reality. What to be excited about? Truly excited about? What not to be excited about? Um, as a man on the street, you know, who's you know who dabbles with hip hop, I thought, yeah, hey, that's pretty cool, you know. And I wonder, and this is someone who's going to speak to you. I wonder if they've got a billion dollar line of credit <laughs> from the Chinese. We don't have one quite that large yet, but uh, I mean, hopefully, I mean, first of all, yeah, I mean, we, we haven't really bumped into Akon's actual business. I think we're in different parts of Africa, um, but maybe eventually we will as we expand. Um, I mean, I'd say, you know, I get this question sometimes. It's definitely he's brought more attention to this issue, which is a real issue, is that you have people burning open fuel in their homes where you have a solution now that can provide it so much, so much better. And you just need you know, properly financed uh, businesses who can kind of come up with a good proposition to move people off of kerosene and onto solar. So I think he's brought a lot of attention to that. And so what's the question you typically get around ACOD and, yeah. and that related? Sometimes people ask, are you guys going to partner with him? Have you bumped into his product out in the rural areas? You know, have you seen him? Have you seen his his initiative around it? We haven't really yet, but I think that's because he's uh, not in Kenya, Uganda, or Tanzania. But I, I'm, I'm not certain. Uh, I don't know much about the business model. Itself. Yeah, I don't think you, you share a business model at all. I just, I suppose, uh, and for me, this is not really a, a hype check for him specifically. I, I have, I have it on good authority. He's actually getting the work done. But I suppose, again, linked to my previous question, how much do we get excited about? How much, I mean, there's just, there's so many th think pieces on, yeah. on Mcopa, Acon lighting up Africa and a ton of others. And, and as, as an African who, you know, broadcaster working in the scene, um, not just to sort of call out people for the sake of calling out people. It's quite, it's quite important that we know the difference between what's really happening, what matters and what doesn't. I mean, definitely. Like, I think anytime you get one of these new, um, initiatives that get some success, uh, like it, it does tend to get overhyped. If you look at microfinance, like people saw this once this was taking off as like, this is the solution to poverty in Africa. It's like, there's going to be this microfinance. All these small entrepreneurs will be able to be funded now. And it's like, you know, it helps. Microfinance helps, but it's not a universal solution to poverty for sure, right? You also need roads and, and communications and, and lots of things that are uh, much, much harder problems than what microfinance can solve. And if you look at mobile money, here's another one. Like when M-Pesa took off in Kenya and took off so quickly and, and had, you know, 90% of the adult population using it, people saw that this is just like, this is the magic that's going to kind of move Africa, just leapfrog the, the old banking infrastructure. 
and I mean, I think that is happening, but it's happening way slower than I guess the kind of media cycle likes. Like they, they would have loved to have seen 20 more countries tip the way Kenya did. And it hasn't really happened. You know, there's slow and steady progress. I mean, we've been operating in Uganda for about three years and every year it keeps getting better and better. And pretty soon it'll be to Kenyan levels, but it's happening much slower in certain areas. Like these things don't happen overnight. But if you're a journalist that's decided to take this up as your, as the thing that you're going to focus on, you're not going to wait three years and be right, still writing stories about it three years. You want, you want to be onto some hot trend and kind of milk it for a few months and then, you know, move on. So I think mobile money is unstoppable force, but I think it's going to take 20 years until you see basically every last uh, part of the world with a big unbanked population where they've moved fully onto mobile money. Uh, but that's great. I mean, that'll be, if, if you can, if you can do it in 10, 20 years, that's fantastic. You know, Kenya just happened to be the fastest place and that people got excited about that. Um, but you know, with solar, uh, there's a lot of interest in this. And sometimes we get this question because people say you've been successful with kind of solving this problem of kerosene for people. So can you now solve the problem of using firewood or charcoal uh, for cooking fuel in our thing is like, we can't solve every problem. We, we've solved one problem. Uh, and some people who are smarter than us will solve other, other problems that are harder problems. But, um, but you know, the, the hype sometimes sees like the solution works for one thing. So maybe it can work for everything, or maybe this is the solution to poverty. And I don't think any one of these on their own is a solution, but they're all pieces of the puzzle. And there's a lot of smart people working on cooking fuel. And there's a lot of pe smart people working on clean water and things like that. Things that MCOPA probably won't solve. Maybe we'll be a part of the solution. For example, we're financing clean cook stoves now for customers, for our customers who finish payment, but we're not developing new types of cook stove or new types of cooking fuel. And someone smarter than us We'll, we'll, we'll do that. Uh, and then that will be overhyped at that time as well, right? So it's sort of a cycle. And so what do people typically get wrong? What are they typically off the mark about or a little too uh, enthusiastic about for your own liking? I mean, it must be fun to like trawl through what at this point must be tons of these things where you could Google them copper and just find, I mean, I saw a Dutch one in Dutch the other day and uh, it was like beautiful pictures and everything looked great. And I thought, wow, okay, cool. And the usual suspects were on it and, and Della, you guys, and, yeah. uh, you know, the usual Impesa was obviously mentioned, et cetera. Um, what, what do they typically get? Mm, not so right. I, I mean, I think it's the thing that any one of these ideas is going to be some sort of comprehensive solution to the lack of development in Africa or, or other places. You know, I think MCOPA is a piece of the puzzle and I think we could be a huge piece of the puzzle. You know, I think we could be, you know, the main part of the story of sub-Saharan Africa, leapfrogging the grid technology and moving a huge amount of people directly onto rooftop solar because it does need the finance. And I don't see any other company who's better placed to be in that position, but we'll have solved that problem. There's still going to be a bunch of other problems. People will still be chopping down trees for their cooking fuel. They'll still be drinking uh, water that's not properly purified. And those problems we're not going to, we're not going to solve or not going to immediately solve. Who knows what will happen in the future? But I think, yeah, this idea that that any one of these innovations is kind of a magic bullet for the development problems. I mean, there's a host of problems in rural Africa around development, and this is, solves one piece. It's an important piece, but it's not everything. So this isn't the second coming. I don't think so. <laughs> okay. I want to know whether, you know, your being outsiders, all three of you, um, has made it harder for you to express a vision, get business done, grow the business, and how you've, I mean, speak to someone who's listening to, to us from, from New York or wherever you were based in the US and, or, or, or Oxford right now who's thinking, Hey, I, I, I want to vast you with that guy. I'd love, I'd love to do what he's done. Like, what are some of the things that took you by surprise in terms of, Oh, this is harder for me than 
for someone else simply because I'm not from here or um, I'm going to need to think about this differently because I'm not from here. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think sometimes we get surprised by those sorts of things because you come in with a certain mindset, like even just the product design itself, like the look and feel of the product. Um, you know, early on in some of the first versions, we had the lights looked very high tech. The actual the actual lights themselves that hung from the uh, ceiling on cables, uh, you know, they, they were designed to look very high tech. What we found when we surveyed our customers, what they wanted is they wanted like something that looked like an incandescent light bulb because that to them, that was a symbol of electricity and they wanted wall switches. They didn't, we had the switches on the actual cables before, but they wanted something that basically could go on the wall next to the doorway because to them, that was what a rich home had. You walked in the door, there was a switch there and then a bulb went on and it looked like a bulb. So we designed it in a way that it doesn't look as nice to us, but for our customers, that's exactly what they're, what they're after. I mean, it's sort of an interesting perspective. I, mean, I remember one of the times I, uh, early on at M Copa, when I brought a few of our, uh, uh staff to an Italian restaurant, uh, in Nairobi, which is frequently frequented mainly by expats and they had candles on the table and they're, they just found it hilarious that there'd be candles on the table at such an expensive restaurant because to them candles are like what their grandma used to light her home. And it's a symbol of poverty, right? Like why would you put a wax candle on a table at a place that's charging these kinds of prices for their food? It just didn't make sense to them. They, you know, so it, that, that sort of example kind of shows like the sort of biases you come in, especially around, yeah, the customer experience and how you really, you really need to, I mean, you just need to listen to your customers. I mean, it helps as well that we have great local uh, staff. I mean, if you look just as an example, our Ugandan operation, there's not a single expat there. Ugandan general managers, head of customer care, head of finance, everyone in our Ugandan operation is uh, uh, purely uh, Ugandan. And in Kenya, we have a huge, obviously, a set of Kenyan managers who helps us more to kind of navigate the local uh, local kind of variances that we wouldn't otherwise uh, catch. Have any of those kind of misjudgments on your part nearly cost you like the entire business? Like, was there a decision or a miscalculation um, that was rooted in your being not from here, as it were, that might have, like, derailed the whole thing? I mean, luckily not, or not that I can think of. I mean, part of it is, I'd say, just taking a step back on that question, I mean, Kenya is a has, has really made themselves a great environment to do business. You can come in as foreigners and own a hundred percent of a business. And the government really has a hands-off approach, especially with us. We're in a pretty unregulated space. There's not regulations around solar power for small kind of home solar power. Um, so they've pretty much our hands off. I'd say it's a really well-governed country as far as allowing entrepreneurs such as ourselves to come in, set up shop, you know, to, to figure, figure stuff out and uh, not, not, not bother you much, which has been useful. And so did you move your whole family over? Do you spend uh, time abroad as well as here? What, what's, what's life like in terms of that for you? Yeah. So, I mean, that was part of the trick in getting this done was convincing my wife uh, to move to Kenya with me to try out this new business. And uh, I mean, I, I tell people that this is actually one of the most important things, I think, in being an entrepreneur. If you're married, you need a supportive spouse because, you know, you know, we, we, we were quite comfortable in New York, you know, living, uh, living like an investment banker's sort of life, you know? And so she was willing to kind of go with me on kind of trying something new. And I told her when we moved to Kenya, I said, listen, this might fail. We might be back home in a year, a year and a half, if this doesn't work and we'll be sleeping on your parents' couch. Cause I'll have burned through all my money in the meantime. She, and she was like, if that's the worst that's going to happen, that's fine. We'll figure it out. We'll get started again. It's not a problem. So that was huge. Right. Because you know, I, uh, keeper. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because you know, I had friends in investment banking that, I mean, 
their wife wouldn't even let them, you know, basically leave and in, leave investment banking because they were trying to buy a vacation home in the Hamptons or something like, you know, it's kind of like the expectation of the family, I think is critical. And I don't think this is talked about so much, but it's like, if you're, if you're married and you're going to do this, you absolutely need to be on the same page because you're putting everything, everything at risk. So that's been a huge part of it. So, so we moved there, uh, in 2011, my older son was five at the time. And then we ha- we've had twins that were twin boys who were born there since we've lived in Kenya. Oh, fantastic! Very interesting. Wow, I think we we've we've talked about a lot of interesting things. I'm happy to tell you it's downhill from here. Oh, good. Glad to hear it. <laughs> if you knew for sure that tonight you'd be hosting your last supper, who would you invite? And I have to limit um, your guest list to three people, dead or alive. Okay, so um, the one that uh, that comes to mind that yeah, my my partners uh, have heard me talk about too many times is uh, Malcolm McLean, who who basically invented containerized shipping. And this is this is one of the uh, the, the kind of stories of innovation that I go back to again and again because it's this amazing thing where you know shipping uh, before. The shipping container was, you know, break bulk cargo and it had kind of these huge constituencies, constituencies who were invested in its, uh, is kind of, its kind of ongoing, uh, uh, practice such as the, you know, the longshoremen, all the people who unloaded trucks and everything, everything else, the, the, the unions, even the ports themselves that had invested in certain kind of infrastructure. And so when the shipping container came in, basically everyone in the shipping industry was against it. Um, and so Malcolm McLean, like basically had to, get everyone across the line on something that basically everyone hated in the entire thing. But I mean, the advantage was, and his instinct was, this was so much more efficient than the way it's being done now that people will just have to adopt this. Um, and I, I see, I see, um, and, and that's eventually what happened, but it took him 30 years before it got it done. He had to start with these kind of off run minor ports that basically had nothing else going for them who were willing to take a flyer on it. And, uh, it's amazing to me his story because, because just the way he stuck with it in the face of all opposition, like the guy was probably, you know, with the people he had to work with and convince, he was the most unpopular guy in the world and he stuck with it in 30 years and he totally revolutionized. I mean, not just the shipping industry, but, you know, look around you now, just the fact that, you know, we buy goods from China, like, like nothing. It's like, this is all because of the shipping container. So this is someone I would have loved to have, to have met because the guy's just a real intellectual hero that he just kept going with this idea over the course of decades when basically everyone who was basically interested in this hated him for what he was what he was doing because he changed things so so dramatically do you see do you see yourself in him i mean i, I no I, I mean that'd be yeah no. everyone loves you guys <laughs> everyone loves mkopa <laughs> no i mean uh i'd say mobile money is a bit maybe like this in that with its spread now you know there's a lot of people opposed to it the banks and the banking regulators basically they're they're opposed to it but when you see the way it works in kenya the way the M-Pesa system works, you see that this has got to be an unstoppable force. Like once you use it, it's so much better than anything else that's out there that you can't picture that, you know, that the whole world won't be doing this in 10 or 20 years. So um, anyway. I, and you must be glad, you must be glad you're not in banking anymore. How, how happy, you know, and we will come back to your second and third guest, right? But the question comes to mind. Um, what do you miss about, aside from a, a home in the Hamptons, who you probably would have earned by this point if you had stayed in investment banking? But what else do you miss about that world? And what are you super glad you don't have to deal with anymore in terms of investment banking? <laughs> 
I mean, I, I'd say the answer to both is probably the people, right? Like you're surrounded by in trading, like people who are really quick studies. They can, they can just assess problems in their head really quickly with pretty complex kind of mathematical stuff. They can kind of figure and not always based on kind of precision, based on hunches, like patterns that they've seen and they can make, make decisions quick, which is the way I like to think. But then the worst part is these people, it's highly correlated with being a bit of an a-hole, right? And that's, I definitely became one as well during the course of that. So you, you deal with these kind of type A's and you lose, I'd say this, you develop strong interpersonal skills, but they're the wrong ones. You know, you develop the wrong type of interpersonal skills. So stabbing someone in the neck, how quickly can I, how quickly will they die? Right. So, I mean, I loved it. I'd still say working in investment banking and in trading, it was a great kind of foundation for what I'm doing now. And I got to say, in some ways, a lot of the challenges that we look at today with our customer payment behavior are not that different from like the mathematical uh, challenges of like analyzing like a mortgage bond because you're combining economics of the customer with kind of uh, other sort of human behavior things and looking how people perform as a as a portfolio uh, not always economically rational and so I, I'd say you know the challenges I face are not hugely dissimilar but I think we're still on the the dinner guests so. yes we're back <laughs> to the dinner okay back to back to dinner back to dinner so you're planning your last supper yeah, yeah. we've got Mr McLean. Take the easy way out and say then I'd invite my wife and my 11-year-old son, Mateo, because I think he'd re- my son would really enjoy the conversation as well. All right. Okay, cool. That was a, that's a, that's a clever one. So shout out to the, to the wifey and the kid because <laughs> he's just earned some brownie points. Sure. Yeah, exactly. She'll, she'll especially like that. that she'll, she'll appreciate that, I'm sure. Immortalized on digital film, uh, digital <laughs> recording. Okay. So uh, speaking of your wife, what would you say she'd say is your most annoying habit? Uh, I mean, now, now it just pisses her off that I just don't switch off from work. You know, it's just kind of, I think, I mean, this is sort of the, this is sort of the benefit and the drawback of, of, of having your own businesses. You know, you're doing what you love, like you're thinking about it all the time because that's what you want to think about. But then, yeah, the drawback is you're thinking about it all the time. So a lot of times it's like you're not present because there's there's something I'm turning over in my head when I should be kind of focusing on her or the kids or whatever it might be. So that's something that's, I mean, it's hard to manage. And I got to say, I haven't really quite figured it out yet. I'm not sure if any kind of entrepreneur that's fully dedicated ever figures it out. Like some of this is kind of, it's part of the deal. You know, <laughs> if you're going in, you're going all in. She'll say no. She'd say, buddy, it's not part of the deal. Uh, fix it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And so uh, what attribute in other people do you find most annoying? This might be awkward if it's an attribute in one of your co-founders. Uh, no, no. I mean, one thing's, uh, I'd say there's, uh, I mean, there's a few things that we, um, Adam Copa and that the co-founders are aligned on is that uh, this idea that you need to get something perfect before you take any action at all. You know, we, we have this uh, saying, we say progress is better than perfection or, you know, done is better than perfect. It's just, it's much better to uh, just when you're 90% there, just do it and have something that's 90% done than, than trying to fix it because there's diminishing returns. You know, you over two weeks, you can maybe get to from zero to 90% done, but to get to 99% done, it'll take another eight weeks. So, you know, it's kind of judging that point where it's good enough. Let's just do it. You know, with some things you can't, like there's certain bits of our technology that we need to know with 99.9% confidence. If we're going to roll out this new change, everything's still going to work with the software and the payments because if otherwise the whole thing is going to fail. But most decisions aren't like that. Most decisions, if you take it with 90% probability, you're still fine. Even if it fails, you can roll back quickly. And so my co-founders and I really, we find, um, 
we find it difficult or we try to train our managers in to stop thinking so much about something. Like once you get to a certain point, we act. We don't, we don't continue to try to make it perfect. We get it good enough and we move forward. And then, of course, you try to keep improving it toward perfection. You're never going to get there. Uh, but kind of, I, I'd say, using perfection as an excuse to not take action because you still have more analysis you can do or more work you can do is, a, I think, is a bad habit. And it's, it's not correlated with success of an entrepreneurial venture. So the creative side of what I do as a broadcaster as well, um, I've had to actively unlearn that. This, this, this podcast wouldn't exist if I didn't apply what you just said because, uh, you know, you get accustomed to working at a certain level, like all the fancy equipment, you cost per minute, like out of the, you know, stratosphere and you're like, you know, getting up in the morning, if you're not going to get it perfect, feels like, mm, should I? And you're absolutely right. You should. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is where it kind of work. It does not look like school. It's like school. You'll have a certain amount of time to prepare for something and you'll try to get as perfect as possible within that timeline. And then the exam will come and you'll have to go from there. But the, the, the idea is you could score hundred percent if you can prepare well enough in that timeline. But in life, it's never like that because you don't know the deadline. The deadline is what you set. So it's always kind of deciding basically, you know, it's like as if you decided when the exam took place each time, you know, so deciding that point, okay, I've done enough preparing. Now we're just moving forward. And I think, you know, we err on the side of setting that earlier, like prepare less, think less and act more. Uh, and I think that's probably a characteristic of many entrepreneurs. That's very American though. <laughs> sure. Or it's just lazy. <laughs> yeah. no. I like, I like the whole, um, done is better than perfect. Is that what you said? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Done is better than perfect. You know, I shall quote you on that one, sir. And so, um, Here's a really light one in terms of a movie date with the wifey, big screen, or Netflix and chill. Oh, I, it's got to say Netflix. Though I got to say, since we've had three kids in the house, it's been really difficult to do that. The Netflix is mainly for kids program. We do have Netflix in Kenya now. We didn't have it for a long time. And so you've got Showmax as well. You might, you might recognize the the voice that's trying to sell it to you in in Kenya. <laughs> oh, is that right? Ah, huh. you may you may just <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll I'll listen out for that and see if I hear it. <laughs> and then uh finally uh well not finally do you listen to podcasts and if so which one uh yeah uh so there's there's one i listen to called stuff you should know uh that basically just takes a different topic and explores it for 45 minutes or something each each week uh just you know kind of completely different random ones so, like i heard uh, on the plane down here i listened to the history of soda like soda pop you know uh, which was you know s stuff that you wouldn't find think you'd find interesting but then you find it fascinating the way that this developed so that's one i listen to um and uh, there's, there's a, few, a few other news programs I do as well. Yeah, there's a similar one uh, uh, from Gimlet Media called Surprisingly Awesome. They're on a similar tip where they take something seemingly mundane and then they sort of extra extrapolate it. Look, it's not the best podcast out there. I wouldn't recommend it otherwise. But since you're in that kind of zone, I think you should check it out. Thank you. I will. All right, then. So final question. Is there a question I haven't asked that uh, you wish I had? about our, our, our plans to take over the world. Uh, so MCOPA, as we mentioned, it's in, uh, I, I got to plug the company, you know, I can't just, I can't just plug Chad Larson this whole time. So let me, so let me, so let me humor you. What are, what are MCOPA's plans for taking over the world? That's if uh, Facebook doesn't get to it first. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, right now with four, 400,000 so customers in East Africa, we want to go deeper with those customers as far as financing follow-on goods that are useful for the customers, which we're already doing in the form of cook stoves, water tanks, things like that. These are customers that finish their payment on the first payment plan for the solar device and then have basically freed up some income that they can pay off, pay off other loans. So we're loaning them 
against the asset value of new goods. Uh, so- Sorry, pause. Uh, again, I forgot to ask. Are you guys registered as a financial services provider? No, and we don't need to be. I mean, it might be as we go into new markets, we might have to in certain jurisdictions, but that's one of the bits of light regulation in East Africa that's been very good in that we're just a trading company. And the form of our contract is just a credit sale contract, which is a common law contract that, that's not subject to any specific regulation, So, which is great. Uh, that's very interesting. So you know, so back where you were, taking over the world. So yeah, so we want to go deeper with our customers. We're not just selling a solar device. They're entering into a financial relationship that hopefully we can continue to develop with them, supplying them useful goods that they need finance for. So hopefully, instead of just holding on to customers for a year, we'll be holding them on for years and years basically as their main source of kind of finance for useful goods. Second, we want to expand geographically everywhere in the world where there's a big off-grid population initially. And that most of that is in sub-Saharan Africa, but then also in South Asia. So India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and, and thereabouts. Um, so I'd say hopefully in five years, you see Mcopa with a much bigger footprint that's in a lot more countries in Africa and also perhaps a beachhead in, in South Asia. And we're the one that are basically moving people off of kerosene straight onto solar. Would you rebrand, repackage, co-brand, or, or anything like that, or would you go to market as Mcopa everywhere you go? Yeah, uh, it depends. I mean, I, I'd say we could go as Mcopa depending on what you know, wh- as long as it didn't sound like something funny in the local language or whatever it might be. But we'd probably take it case by case by case. But we're certainly not wedded to that uh, the, that brand uh, worldwide. Uh, but we do we do want to, um, I'd say, own the customer relationship. Fantastic. Chad Lawson of Mkopa, thank you very much for talking to me. It's been, it's been great, man. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversation.